and the ability to return for double time. Um, then Professor Littman uh, will have 10 minutes. Um, Mr. Birch, you will also have 10 minutes. And then we will go back to Mr. Coleman and the Attorney General um, if you have succeeded in reserving your time. So with that, Ms. Nessel. Thank you. 
statistic legislators about we need better, you know, we need to pass a law to protect prisoners. Uh, and that would have been an unanticipated consequence, but it was still within the plain language of the law. And of course, for statutory interpretation purposes, that is what this court should uh, and does look for first, the plain, unambiguous meaning of the words used. And here, it was because of sex. One cannot possibly know one's sexual orientation without first knowing what their sex is. And in this case, it's very clear. Uh, if Natalie Johnson was instead Nate Johnson, he would not have had the discrimination. If Megan Oswald was instead uh, Matthew Oswald, he would not have had this adverse reaction and discrimination would not have occurred. So but for that, he would not have had the discrimination. All you have to do is literally swap out the, the sex of either of these individuals and we would have had a different result. And that is a but-for cause of sex discrimination as interpreted under LPRA. So in regard to reasons why it's so imperative that the court overturn Barber, um, which of course is a 1993 case, a court of appeals case, this court really has never analyzed the issue of whether or not uh, sexual orientation or even gender identity uh, is covered under the word sex for the purposes of sexual discrimination, uh, sex discrimination. Um, but the fact is when we're looking at this, you know, old ruling that we're seeking to have the court overturn, I think it's important to know that this was a two-page decision that had um, practically no legal analysis, and it completely relied on cases involving Title VII, which of course now have all been overturned um, by virtue of Boston and other federal court rulings. The only other cases that even appear in Boston uh, are unrelated to uh, sexual orientation at all. So I would really take Barber and, and I compare it to a game of Jenga. Um, you have a structure that's built on a lot of little pieces, and now all of those pieces have been removed, and so by necessity, that structure topples. And the same is now true, you know, Barber again, it relies on Title VII, and you know Title VII is now interpreted to include sexual orientation and gender identity, and the same analysis applies here. That's plays a necessary and indistinguishable role in the discrimination, uh, and that someone who discriminates against a person who is gay or transgender discriminates against that for trade or activity would not have questioned in members of a different sex. So it's sex discrimination, plain and simple. Members of the general, first off, it's a pleasure to have you welcome here to the Supreme Court. And the question I have is, I guess if you could explain kind of, I always try to keep things simple, kind of a, the way I like to approach it, and understand it from a student perspective. If you would explain to the Attorney General, if you could explain to the court, if you do not prevail today, what is the real life implications for LGBTQ citizens? The real life implications will be the same as we've had, unfortunately, um, for decades and decades, and that is discrimination against not a couple, not dozens, but hundreds of thousands of Michigan residents who identify as LGBT. Uh, and of course, the Bostic um, uh, opinion will apply to larger employers, but we have you know, thousands and thousands of, of employers or public accommodations or other types of facilities that, um, that fall uh, within MCL 37.2302A, uh, where there is less than 15 people, or 15 and under, uh, that you know, run such a facility or employed at such a facility. So honestly, what it means is that for you know, everyday uh, Michiganders uh, who seek to even do something as simple as to go into a, a cafe and order a cup of coffee, they can still be turned away, and they can still be told, we will not serve you here. And, and that is a travesty. Counsel, can you respond to um, opposing counsel's hypothetical about an employer that burns 
regard to the individual and not just the group. And that's what, you know, that's the important thing, I would say, about the way that the court should interpret the word sex. It is, at its base, it ultimately is discrimination against men and discrimination against women, and they're both wrong. Do you agree that the legislature had in mind the biological distinctions between men and women in the use of the word sex in the statute? Well, I can't do brain surgery on each one of those individuals to know exactly what they were thinking, but I think... Let me ask you a different question. What definition are you using now for that? Well, I would say this. Even though there are multiple definitions that have been provided, some of them work in the context of the law, and some of them don't make any sense, right? The sexual intercourse. Clearly, the intent of the legislature was not to protect people who wanted to have, you know, sex in public accommodations. We know that, right? The reason that they passed this broad remedial statute was to protect people, you know, generally speaking, at that time, I think women and other minorities who had been discriminated against from the evils of discrimination. But that being the case, statutory prohibitions often go beyond the principal evil to cover comparable evils. Let me ask you a different question. Let's assume we agree with Justice Gorsuch that sex, at least by my side, is something that the court will be interested in. It leads to biological distinctions between males and females. He brought up bisexual. My question is, in his framework, if you think of a hypothetical where an employee is a man who is attracted to both men and women, and is fired for that, is fired because the employer has a policy against bisexuals, but if a woman is in the same situation, she's bisexual, and she's fired by the same employer, how does that firing relate to the sex of the employee? Well, I think it goes back to sexual stereotypes in general, right? When it comes to bisexuals, you know, same thing. We assume that a woman would be only attracted to or only married to a man and not possibly, you know, be attracted to both men and women. So it defies sexual stereotypes for that reason. But again, going back to the plain, broad language, the remedial nature of the statute, and reading it within the context of the law itself, I believe there is no ambiguity and that the legislative intent is clear, and that's why it's so important that it be included in the definition of sex, sexual orientation. With that, if I can reserve the rest of my time. Thank you, Justice. Your Honor, it's good morning. May it please the Court, may it calm the hearing on behalf of Roush Hurley. And we're here today along with my son, Stephen, who's been our firm, and Professor William Wagner, who I know is familiar to the Court, is familiar with him, and other esteemed counsel. It's a pleasure to be here to argue this important case today. And it's important to define the issue that's before you today. Whether the Michigan legislature intended the Elliott Larson Act, however, to include sexual orientation as a protected class. That's the issue. The issue is, secondarily, who decides? Is it the legislature, the people through ballot proposals, or is it this Court being asked to create a new category or reinterpret a term that's had common knowledge and usage for 45 years? That's here. That's the issue. We're not here today to decide, is sexual orientation as a protected class a good or a bad public policy? People of goodwill can have differing opinions on all of these public policy issues. We're not here to decide whether sexual orientation should or should not be included in LPAR. That is not the issue. The issue before you today is, what does the term sex mean back in 1976 when it was passed by the legislature? There are two indisputable facts in this case. First, the legislature did not include sexual orientation in LPAR when it was passed as evidenced by the actual vote of legislators. 
and statements of legislators at the time, including the sponsors of the bill. Second, the courts, the Civil Rights Commission, legislators, all citizens of Michigan have understood, secondly, that Elkhart did not include sexual orientation within the common understanding for over 45 years. Now, I agree with Helen, where they say, look at the individual, one person under Elkhart. Clearly, that's the standard. And Elkhart does prohibit discrimination because of sex, and that's the phrase in the Bostock case in here. So consider this hypothetical. One man who wants to rent out a conference room, and he goes to the event facility, the owner says, I have a policy that I will only rent to homosexual individuals. Changing that man's sex would have absolutely no effect on whether or not the owner would rent the room. No effect at all. It would not matter whether the homosexual is a man or a woman. It would not matter. However, changing the man's sexual orientation would absolutely change the owner's decision. That proves our argument here, or what we're saying with that simple hypo. Because analyzing as an individual, as Elkhart requires, it's clear the owner is not changing his decision because of sex. He's changing it because of sexual orientation, a category specifically denied by the legislature and repeatedly denied over the years with many amendments. And that's the difference here. I would say so, sure. National origin, I would assume so, yes. Well, you could argue that's religion. No, I understand. I think it's different because here we have a different situation. The term sex and sexual orientation do not have commonly understood and mean the same thing. They don't. Race does. White, black, Asian, whatever. Religion. Whatever your race. Buddhist, whatever. All these things have commonly understood meanings. Sex is not the commonly understood meaning of sex. It was biological sex, male and female. That's why. That's the difference. So even though the associational, there's so many S's and vowels, discrimination in those other examples would be covered if not here for the same reason. I think I understand your answer. For the same reason that the difference doesn't matter. It's the same difference. Right. It comes down to, as I said initially, that's one of the issues before you today is who decides. I'm not here saying that's right. I'm just saying that's the law. And who makes that decision to change it? Do we reinterpret laws that have common plain meanings for years, decades? Or do we let the legislative process and the people decide? And that's our position. Yeah, I would like to jump in. Sure. I was wondering, back when the law was passed, do you think the legislature thought it was okay if a business owner had opened a new business and said, I will only serve gay people or members of the LGBT community? Back when the law was passed, I'm curious if you think the legislature, would they have been okay with that? Well, I don't know how we could determine that at this point. That was not the issue. All we can say for sure is that there's direct evidence that the phrase, the term sexual orientation was offered as an amendment and it was denied. That's evidence that you have, and that's uncontroverted. Beyond that, I don't know what we could say beyond that. Do we know what the whole legislature understood the definition of sex to mean at that time? I mean, legislation, there's compromises all the time, obviously. Sure. And sometimes ambiguity, sometimes by design. So I'm just wondering, how can we know what that amendment really meant? Well, 
you to know that part of it because they voted on it. Beyond that, I would agree, probably conjecture. But here we're not conjecturing. I mean, you have the explicit legislative context. You know, the language that was put in place, the legislative enactment context is clear here. That's direct evidence, as Justice Arnold was alluding to in his question. Beyond that, I would say, too, remember the Bush v. Chamberlain decision where, I'm sorry, the DEQ decision on page 10 of our brief, which says where the legislature has considered certain language and rejected it in favor of other language, the resulting statutory language should not be held authorized with the legislature explicitly rejected. That's all we're saying here. And so if you follow those basic statutory rules of construction, then I think the answer here is clear. It was in committee, but the legislature... Well, I would say yes. I mean, the legislature, that's the way they function. Bills don't get out of committee. They either pass or they don't, and then they go from there. And so... But the legislature speaks through its acts and its votes, and that's the vote that's in place. So, I mean, we could... I mean, I don't know if that came before the House at that time, whether it would have been passed or denied by one vote either way. I mean, who knows? But that doesn't matter. The act of the legislature was the act in the committee. That's what they did. And nobody offered any amendments on the floor. Nobody did anything else to offer it up again. And we provided other evidence in our briefs and attachments showing that everybody at the time understood that bill would not have passed, that that category had been added. Now, I would like to address... I'm sorry, did that answer your question, Justice? Yes. Okay, thank you. The trustee does... Yes. Do we look at the ordinary meaning of those two words, or is it specialized? Sure. Thank you, Justice, for that question. This really gets back to the Bostock case and the because of issue, and I really do want to address that. There's a difference in what we're facing today and what you're having to decide today based on the Bostock case and what you have before you. First, the parties in the court all agreed that the word sex is used in Title VII meant biological sex. Everybody agreed to that. But secondly, then the Bostock court went on and created a different standard of review of the because of issue and used their but-for analysis that they did in that case and came up with their test. But in Michigan, our court, your court, has not done the same thing, has not utilized the same but-for analysis in Michigan. That's not... We use a but-for standard, but it's a different one. And when you look at the cases, we cite in our brief Matras, Lytle. It's very clear that Michigan properly uses the determining factor or motivating factor in the but-for analysis. The Bostock court did not do that. And when you use that, the determining factor for the alleged act of discrimination, that leads to a different result. And a third thing here that I think is critical in Bostock, they did not have direct evidence of the legislative context that you have, that I just talked about a minute ago. They have no evidence of that like we have here. Sexual orientation was explicitly rejected here. It wasn't in Congress. At least there's no evidence supplied of that. So I think those are a number of the issues. And I would say if the court adopts the new Bostock but-for standard, which is different from our current but-for standard, then you're changing precedent, decades of precedent, and how these cases are decided. And I would think the ripple effects of all that would have a lot of potentially unintended consequences. It says legislative context, but I have to close with an example. Is it legislative history or is it statutory history? Am I nitpicking? Is there a difference between the two? No, I think it's in... Maybe I didn't do it as well in our brief as we should have, but I think there is a difference because this isn't like a legislative service bureau memorandum or some notes from one of the members or things like that. And that's something the court can look at and all those sorts of things could be cherry-picked. This is direct evidence of actual votes on the statute itself. So I think that is an entirely different category. That's why I use the phrase legislative enactment context because it's not the same thing. 
and it is direct evidence. And that's a huge difference with Bostock. I think if they had had that in the Bostock case, I think they probably would have seen a different result. And again, with all of this, we're not saying that it shouldn't be changed, okay? What we're saying is that we can't, we should not be going through these tortured attempts to change a word that everybody understood and knew what it meant for 45 years to try to achieve a result that should be achieved with the voice of all the people in the legislature and doing it that way. Petition drives, things like that, that could be done. It's not the end of the story. It doesn't mean discrimination is going to continue forever. And that's sort of not at all. It just means go to the proper forum and have this done. Now, if I could just teach you from the platform stuff, the one you're being tested. Yeah, yeah. But our court is going to be changing our platform test. Right. I don't view them as synonymous. There's a motivating factor test and there's a platform test. Yeah, I was kind of lumping them together. But you're right. We have this motivating factor, determining factor, I think is the phrase that's used in some of the cases. That's correct. Platform factor. Could one birth even be a platform? A platform being born could have been discriminated against. I suppose. I can't disagree with that. No, I understand what you're saying. Absolutely. And let me just address briefly, I know sex stereotype issue has come up a couple of times. And I really want to address that with you. Because obviously we're all aware of the Title VII cases and sex stereotype cases and things like that that are out there. But it's really important to remember that with these types of cases, the Price Waterhouse line of cases, that did not create a new category of protection under Title VII. See, they're blurring the lines here. Okay? It didn't do that. If you look at the cases, it doesn't say, well, now you can't discriminate because of sexual orientation. They don't say that. What do they say? It holds that sex stereotypes can serve as evidence of a violation of sex. So it's an evidentiary issue. It's not a category issue. That's a huge difference. A huge difference here. And so many of our Supreme Court justices have said there have been times sex stereotypes may not be enough evidence to prove that there's been sex discrimination. So this is not a situation of, well, sex stereotypes, that means sexual orientation, that means it's a new category, that means it's prohibited. No. There's no case law in here that says that. None whatsoever. Sex stereotypes are specific, and a court can look at those things, but it only deals with the issue in that particular case. It's an evidentiary issue. So I really wanted to make that point. Now, let me just briefly, I want to touch on the plain meaning versus literal meaning, because I think appellants are blurring that also. Plain meaning is very clear. It means, let me find my notes here, the plain meaning of a statute is what the words meant when it was passed by the legislature. The literal meaning means they take a word, find all possible definitions, see if we can find a definition that fits in the category, and then now say, well, now that applies. So you see the difference between a literal and a plain meaning. I think what the appellants are doing here is literal meanings, and we cite a bunch of cases in our brief. I don't want to take a lot of time here, but I want to point that out, that they're really not arguing plain meaning. If the plain meaning was plain to everybody, how come the Michigan Civil Rights Commission, not eight years ago in their annual report, categorically said we can't handle sex orientation, sexual orientation cases, because we're not authorized to, and until the legislature acts, we can't do it. If that was a plain understood meaning, they would not have issued that in their annual report that they did about eight years ago. So the bottom line here with all of these cases, I'd like to reserve time for rebuttal, is this is really a pretty straightforward case when you put everything else aside. It's the language, and what does the word mean? For 45 years, everybody understood what the word meant, and now it's being asked, they're asking you to change it, and based on what? And we haven't gotten into the ambiguity issue and all that. I would argue there is no ambiguity in the statute, which of course then leads to, well, then how can you look at legislative history and everything else? But our point is, there isn't any ambiguity. Everybody knew what it meant, biological sex, male and female. 
The only ambiguity is being asserted. I'm sorry? I understand. I'll just say, thank you, Justin. I will just say, the uh, ambiguity has been asserted by appellants by trying to add a new definition. And once they do that, then history becomes relevant. So either way, they lose. The plain meaning, male and female, under the uh, ambiguity standard, they lose there too because the evidence we put forth. Thank you.
On the point about whether this involves a different type of causation than was the issue in Bostock, it involves the same type of but-for causation. So when this court in Matras used language of determining factor, it noted that determining factor was synonymous with but-for causation. And of course, but-for causation was the same standard that the Supreme Court recognized in Bostock was why discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation was discrimination because of sex. Even if an employer might be intending to discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation and they can describe their motivations that way, it would still involve discrimination because of sex. Because when the employer refuses to hire John, a man who dates other men, they would have hired Joan, a woman who dates men. And even if their intention was to discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation, in the course of doing so, they will discriminate on the basis of sex. That's what Justice Gorsuch recognized in Bostock. Even though we can label the employer's or entity's motivations in slightly different terms, what they are doing necessarily involves discrimination because of sex. So sex stereotyping can either be evidentiary or categorical. So in some cases, a sex stereotype will be evidence of sex discrimination because, for example, an employer might not hire a man with a high voice but would hire a woman with a high voice. So in that example, the sex stereotyping is a piece of evidence about the discrimination because of sex because there's still a comparator that also underscores there's discrimination on the basis of sex. Other times, however, sex stereotyping might itself just be a form of sex discrimination. So for example, if an employer had a policy that said all employees must conform to stereotypes about how members of their sex should behave, that would be a prohibited form of sex discrimination. In that instance, the employer would be requiring employees to conform to expectations about how members of their sex should behave. And that can still constitute sex discrimination even apart from the evidentiary value. Well, we don't think that is an example of but-for causation because what but-for causation is getting at is whether what the employer or the entity is doing, their policy, necessarily involves discrimination on the basis of sex. So in the example from the brief, there's a question about whether a diner refuses to serve people after 8 p.m. If someone gets there after 8 p.m. because of religious service, would that be but-for religious exercise? That wouldn't be because the employer's policy there doesn't necessarily turn on religion, whereas here, a policy of non-hiring or serving anyone on the basis of sexual orientation, that does necessarily turn on sex. It necessarily turns on sex because in order to determine whether you are going to serve John, you have to ask, who is John attracted to? And you would serve Joan if Joan were attracted to the same people that John is. And so there, the employer's policy is discrimination but-for sex in a way that isn't true when the employer involves or adopts a policy that doesn't necessarily turn on sex. It turns on their criteria that they are using to hire people, fire people, or serve people. It's not a motivating factor test because whether the employer is refusing to hire a particular sex because of animus toward the sex, because of 
paternalism because they're trying to satisfy customer preferences, if they adopt a criteria that necessarily turns on sex, it's still sex discrimination, no matter what their reasons for doing so are. Elliot Larson prohibits disparate treatment, intentional discrimination, no matter why an entity is engaged in that discrimination because of sex. Uh, we heard uh, Mr. Coleman talk about the but-for analysis in Boston being something different than what's rooted in Michigan um, anti-discrimination laws or cases. And I wonder if you have a response to that. Is there a difference? Uh, we don't believe there's a difference. So this court's decision in Hatch adopted but-for causation. This court in Montrose case as well as Lytle has described but-for causation as the same thing as a determining factor, and that is what Bostock used as a standard for causation under Title VII. Um, and I conclude. Uh, Barbara was wrong to create a sexual orientation exception from Elliot Larson's prohibition on sex discrimination. Gay men and lesbians are men and women who are entitled to protection against sex discrimination under Elliot Larson. Thank you. Because sex and sexual orientation involves two factors, not one factor. 
So you need to think about hypotheticals that isolate a single factor. And, and they don't present any of those. So instead what they do is they try to mix them up. And they say you can't consider sexual orientation without considering the sex. You have to know the sex of each person and their sexual orientation. But that's like the hypothetical that we put in our brief about the eggs. You know, if, if Joe loves scrambled eggs but doesn't like omelets, and so he orders scrambled eggs at a restaurant instead of an omelet, it's not because he dislikes omelets, even though omelets are interconnected to eggs. You can't conceive of an omelet without eggs. You know, in order to make an omelet, you have to get a few eggs. Um, but that's not true with respect to sexual orientation and sex. There, there are numerous examples that we can give where those are two distinct concepts. And so the fact that they're related to each other does not mean that both concepts are embedded in the statute. Um, and I want to touch on the, the question about sex stereotyping because that's closely related to this. Um, respectfully, Ms. Lippin is absolutely wrong. Um, there are, are no cases that say stereotyping is an independent claim. They all flow from Price Waterhouse. And what Price Waterhouse says is that it can be some evidence of discrimination based on sex, but that it's not an independent claim. And here, what they would have to show then is that Rauch will pose to the stereotype that people should be attracted only to the opposite sex. And it's possible that you could have a belief that marriage is defined between one man and one woman without having an opinion about who people should be attracted to. In the Roman Empire, sexual or um, same-sex relationships were common. They happened everywhere. And yet the law of the empire was that marriage was only between one man and one woman. Uh, simply because you have a belief about marriage doesn't mean that you have a stereotype about sex. Um, you know, so if you wanted to go down that road, then what you could do is you could remand this case so that evidence could be taken to determine whether Rauschfeld was discriminating because of biological sex. But you can't say that their simple declination of hosting a same-sex wedding ceremony is based on sexual orientation because from that declination, all we know is that they think of marriage as between one man and one woman. And that raises another important point um, because Rauschfeld does not discriminate based on the status, even of sexual orientation. Um, you know, the, the law recognizes the difference between status discrimination on the one hand and refusal to speak a message or to participate in a particular event on the other. So say that you had a, a lesbian attorney who had her own law firm, and if every Catholic who walked in the door holding a rosary, she turned away, that would be discrimination based on religion. But if a Catholic holding that rosary walked in and said, I want you to take my case and argue that there is no right to same-sex marriage, and the motivating factor, the determining factor, is that the attorney can't support that legal position, then she is not discriminated based on religion. She has discriminated based on the message, which is appropriate. And likewise here, Rauschfeld made clear that they would allow this, this couple to have other events at their venue. If they wanted to celebrate a birthday, they could do that. Um, but if uh, even a, a heterosexual couple wanted to celebrate Vladimir Putin's birthday, they would reject that. I mean, there's a line between discriminating against someone based on their status, you know, who they are, and not participating in a particular ceremony or event because it violates your religious beliefs. And I want to also talk on um, Justice Bernstein's excellent question about the real-life implications of, of rewriting the statute. Um, you know, the, the briefs touch on a couple of these, but I, I might add a couple more. Um, I'll, I'll start with the Michigan Catholic Conference brief. And they make the point that under Section 402 and 404 of the Elliott-Larsen Act, if you had a single-sex religious college, then they could decline an applicant in a same-sex marriage if that violated the college's religious beliefs. But if you had a co-ed college, you would not be able to do that. Now, that's a crazy policy outcome. Is that a reason why you should rule in favor of Rauch World? No, you should rule in favor of Rauch World because nobody at the time that Rauch World, um, or at the time that Elliot Larson was enacted, would have thought that the statute op operated in such a strange way. Or likewise, under uh, Section 302, in public accommodations, Church halls are public accommodations. So not only would a Catholic church have to host a same-sex wedding if requested at their facility, they would be barred from posting something on the wall about theology of the body and marriage being between only one man and one woman, because that posting would violate Elliot Larson. Um, is, that, is that the argument on the what does sex discrimination mean under Elliot Larson, or is that in your religious freedom argument that isn't uh, religious freedom is not before the court, and I'm not urging you to. Well, can you give us an example then, like you're, like you're giving us, I think are, are interesting examples to consider that don't involve religion? Sure. If, if you had someone who, who believed, for natural law reasons, that marriage was only between one man and one woman, and it came not from a religious perspective, but from an atheist or pagan perspective. 
Gerald said, we're talking about restaurants. We're talking about places of employment. We're talking about any public gathering. We're talking about all the aspects and all the essence that goes into life, right? Where you work, where you shop, where you live, where you stay. And ultimately, at the end of the day, when you indicated that nobody here wants to discriminate, isn't that ultimately when you kind of go down the end of all of this, right? Look at this in a simplistic fashion. Isn't that really what you're advocating to allow to happen? Is that people can have the opportunity to discriminate in the general life that they live in the sense of where you can go and what you can do. It's just every aspect of life, right? Like we're talking about everything, restaurants, stores, all these types of things that go into how people live and what they do. In the essence of this is that you're saying that your intent isn't that you want to allow for discrimination, but when you really flip it, isn't that really what you're advocating for? Absolutely not, Your Honor. I'm glad you brought that up. Three points on that. Point number one is that this case is not Bostick. It does go into every area of life, just like you said. The very narrow holding in Bostick was that firing someone simply because they're gay or transgender is a Title VII violation. They left everything else open and said those have to be fact-specific determinations to determine what was basically what was the motivation. Because Elliot Larson covers every aspect of life, from schools to churches, there are no religious exemptions like there are in Title VII, this really will upend the apple cart on everything. And rather than making a broad ruling, what you should do is, if you're going to do anything, follow the Supreme Court and say this needs to be a fact-specific inquiry that we need to determine in every single case. So that's point number one. Point number two, no one is advocating for discrimination. If there is a prevalent problem with discrimination where people are getting turned down at coffee houses, and I haven't seen that in the briefing, but let's say that becomes a regular problem, the place that you go is the legislature to fix that. The bigger injustice is not just for failing to stamp out some discrimination. It would be rewriting the public law and stepping outside the judicial law. And that hurts democracy. So the third point is it's entirely possible for someone like Rochefort to have a religious belief about marriage that is not rooted in animus. It's not the kind of discrimination that Elliot Larson was designed to prevent. Real simple example, Catholic theology. The Catholic Church teaches that marriage can only be between a man and a woman because when a husband and a wife come together in an exchange of love, from them comes a third person. And I totally appreciate and totally respect what you said. My question is more
We say contextual scrutiny, contextual. What did the public understand this to mean? What the dissent in Bostock criticized the majority for doing was ripping statutory language out of its context and trying to apply grammatical rules. And as Justice uh, Welch and Kavanaugh eloquently said in the redistricting commission deadline case, this court doesn't take statutory words in the abstract or district of grammatical construction alone as Justice Gorsuch did. It requires a textual analysis that considers the enacting context. And when the gay and lesbian lobby in 1976 understood that this act did not protect against differential treatment based on sexual orientation, that was the public meaning. That there was no one who thought otherwise. Um, and, and so for this court to now interpret it in a way that's contrary to everyone's understanding at that time does damage democracy. Because a future court could take another statute and turn it into whatever plaything it wanted to. Now, the, the, the goals of non-discrimination in justice for are strong and powerful. And those are concerns that you take to the legislature or the ballot through the democratic process. You, you don't have courts upsetting the democracy apple cart by making the statutes mean what they think they should mean uh, based on notions of fairness and justice. Thank you, Thank you. Uh,
Yelper's language, namely, what might have been in the mind of one particular legislator or conjecture about what the public or legislative body as a whole meant by sex. The bottom line is that they chose very broad language, and we take them at their word, even if they couldn't have anticipated every consequence of that broad language. Sexual orientation is not a separate category. It is inextricably intertwined with sex, because discrimination based on sexual orientation involves consideration of that person's sex. It is refusing to tolerate a trait that would be tolerated in another person's sex. And there have been many hypotheticals that were offered today, but again, they asked the wrong question. They asked who was discriminated against, as opposed to why the discrimination occurred. And they focused on groups rather than individuals, for instance, blanket policies. But the ELPRA commands us to look at individuals, and we must ask, would changing the individual's sex result in better treatment? So I ask this court to right the wrongs of the last 46 years, to reverse Barber, and to find that sexual orientation and the interpretation of sex as it appears in ELPRA, and to, at long last, provide dignity to the hundreds of thousands of Michigan residents who are deserving of protection under our state's civil rights law. No more. No less. Thank you, counsel. Thank you all. The case will be submitted.